My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. I will tell you, folks, we get a lot of guests in on this podcast, and of course you've heard them all, but it is not every day, well, actually, it is not any day ever, uh, that we have had a Nobel Prize winner on the podcast. I am not kidding you, though. We do have one. Welcome to the Money Beat Podcast. I am Paul Vigna. Stephen Grosser has the day off. I am joined, It's, it's and too bad for Stephen Grosser, uh, I am joined today in the studio by Jean Tirole, who is the chairman of the Toulouse School of Economics and the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse, and he is winner of the 2014 Nobel Prize in Economics. He is also the author of the new book, Economics for the Common Good. It will be coming out on November 7th. Uh, it is definitely one you want to pick up. Jean, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Paul. How thanks are you? For, fine. Thanks for having me. So you, you, you came all the way across the ocean for this podcast. Yes. As I understand <laughs> it, right? That's how it was pitched to me. <laughs> yes. Uh, so that's the launch now of this book. And uh, it's the first time, actually, I uh, write a wide audience book. Uh, uh-huh. It's still a lot of economics and trying to evangelize the economic message. But uh, in the past, I've talked a lot to experts for 25 years. I belong to the French Council of Economic Advisors for 20 years. So talk to the experts in corporations, in, in ministries and the like, but I never engage with a wider audience. So when I got the Nobel Prize in, in 2014, I got stopped in the street by people asking me, you know, everything you write is completely unreadable. <laughs> and uh, you really should uh, write something to explain to us uh, how economics can contribute to the common good. Okay. So, so that was the, the impetus for the book. Uh, you know, it's interesting because my job here as a reporter is, is kind of along the same lines, you know, I'm, but I'm not an expert in economics. But, I mean, our job is to kind of try to try to write it that way. So was, was there a challenge in trying to translate economics for the common good? And, and should there be a challenge? Should that challenge really even exist? Yes, there's a challenge in that uh, we all have cognitive biases, and actually it's, they are very widespread in the population, including uh, very educated people. We believe what we want to believe, and also we stop at first impression. So mm-hmm. we, uh, we see something, we see the direct beneficiaries of a policy, but we forget the indirect and invisible victims of the policy, and we economists are supposed to do that, basically say, watch out. You have this well-meaning policy. It could be rent control. It could be unemployment uh, protection, employment protection, job protection, or whatever. And say you, you're meaning well, but watch out. There are lots of bad consequences of your policy. I think uh, if you were to walk out onto the street here, walk out onto Sixth Avenue, and just spend an hour standing on the corner and asking people what they thought of economics and if they thought economics was working for them you would probably get a lot of negative question uh, answers. Do you, do you think people – do you think the problem is that people don't understand economics or do you think the problem is that economics is not understanding people in this day and age? Well, a little bit of both, honestly, but uh, it's true. I mean, just to give you an anecdote, a French journalist one asked me, is economics for the common good? You know, the title of the book, an oxymoron. 
And yeah, this is very typical of uh, since the financial crisis in particular, but it's more general than that. Um, if you think experts nowadays are, you know, people are skeptical of experts by and large, and we need to restore trust in experts. It's also true that economists, you know, don't always understand the concerns of people, and we need to do a better job at that. I mean, just take trade, for example. We overwhelmingly are in favor of trade, and we think that uh, free trade is good. At the same time, you know, there are winners and losers, and we we don't always qualify our, our recommendations through watch out. Um, there are losers out there, and, and those losers actually marry bell and vote for left-wing or right-wing uh, you know, populist pop- politicians because they are so upset about economics. And why exactly is that happening at this point? Obviously, that is happening. Uh, it it's came very close to happening in France where you had a, a extreme right-wing leader elected. Uh, it, it did happen here in this country where we've had a man run on a populist message and, and he was elected. It's happened in other countries. I mean, is is economics failing to some point that so many people feel so dissatisfied that they are turning to these other these, these what before were fringe candidates? Well, economics is a convenient scapegoat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and take the financial crisis, which is by and large a huge uh, government failure of failing to regulate what it had to regulate. And, you know, take the European crisis, the same thing. Um, there was no control of, of public debt of southern European countries, uh, no monitoring of competitiveness. I mean, there was some, but, you know, it was not acted upon. And, you know, in the end, um, all those failures um, about, uh, per, you know, public debt and, and pride debt and and also the concern about inequality, the hollowing out of the income distribution, because we have seen, you know, most people, uh, wages stagnating with... Uh, others uh, actually rose very fast. Um, all those things actually fuel concern. And now we, of course, have climate change and this and that. So the populists actually are building on the fears and the frustration. Um, you know, we live in an era where there will be lots of uh, upheaval from the digital revolution. The jobs are going to be destroyed faster and faster. And I know in my home country, people are very worried about that, but I'm sure it's, you know, it's everywhere the same. Yeah. Do do you? It's interesting you mentioned wages, and I have been banging the drum on wage growth for for years and years. And everyone, I'm not trying to toot my own horn a, l- a little bit, John, a little bit. I mean, everyone looks at it now, but I'm telling you, for years before people were really even looking at it, I was saying this will not be a healthy economy until you see healthy wage growth. And I don't think we have seen it yet, and I don't think we have a very healthy economy. Why are wages so stagnant? I know the 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 the, the the marketplace structure is slightly different in Europe and the United States. I, I get that. But wages are still very low. Wage growth is still very low. W- what do you think is driving or not driving, but what do you think is, is damping down this wage growth so much? Well, there are a couple of factors. Uh, one is, of course, uh, trade, and which has benefited the nations as all, well, not only China and India, but also France, uh, Europe, the U.S., the U.K., and so on. We get richer through trade, but at the same time, those who are in competition with the Chinese, uh, for example, the Indians, of course, suffer because they, they, they are substitutes there. Um, technological progress has the same effect because we, you know, some jobs are being replaced and, and, and of course, those suffer, especially if similar jobs are not created in the same region. 
And that's going to get worse and worse. And we know now with AI that actually uh, lots of jobs will be destroyed, not only on skilled jobs, but also skilled jobs. I mean, think just about a general practitioner or doctor. Mm-hmm. Given AI and given genetics, you know, it's, it's going, the competition will be very intense very soon. So where do you, as, a, as an economist, as a Nobel Prize winning economist, where do we go from there? I mean, those, those trends are not going to go away. So how do you compensate for that so that people do have some kind of wage, whether they do maintain a quality of living? Well, what, what's, I know this is a gigantic question, but I mean, like, what is, what is the answer to that problem? Well, to be honest, as a social scientist, I don't really have a, an extraordinary answer to that, but um, there are a few, few ideas, of course, is that more and more you have to protect workers and not protect jobs. I mean, in, in Europe, we protect jobs by basically a number of countries saying that if you want to dismiss a worker, you have to go to a court. And the worker has a right to a court, and that's very expensive. Uh, in the U.S., you, you tend to have more protectionism, uh, at least at the plan. Um, so, you know, protecting job is not going to actually do the job, if I can say so, because, you know, w- by doing that, you won't get job creation anymore. Mm-hmm. People won't want, you know, the firms won't want to create jobs anymore, so that's going to be a big difficulty. What you have to do is to protect workers, and you know, protection of workers includes generous unemployment benefits, uh, together with, of course, some very strong commitment to take a job if you uh, find one. And you know, so there must be a very strict monitoring of, of the unemployed at the same time. You know, generosity goes with actually monitoring, of course, accountability. Um, you must retrain workers, and you know we spend in France we spend thirty one billion euros per year retraining workers without much effect and you know you have to make those structures of retraining much more efficient you know better education and, and the like i mean there are a bunch of things like that, and then there is the big issue which for which we don 't have an answer is the universal income because I was going to ask about that I figured you were going to go there eventually. yeah, yeah because. Universal income, we all have some kind of universal income uh, in most countries, you know, some minimum right. standard of living. Uh, but what's, um, what's difficult, of course, to calibrate? What can you afford? That's the first question. And the second question is you want to keep incentive for work because we all have a dignity, right? And we all want to contribute to society. And, you know, there's some, but at the same time, if the wage is really too low, we are not going to to make the effort maybe to, to work. Some, some people will do, will do, but some people won't. And that's a big challenge, and you know, we have to calibrate all this, and it's not very easy to do. Yeah. You know, this is going to sound maybe a little bit weird, but you, know, you talk about you know, people want to contribute, and of course they do, and they want to be rewarded for their contribution, and that makes sense too. And then sometimes you look at some of the jobs that get rewarded in this country and in other countries elsewhere, you know, sometimes I think the incentives are out of whack. When I see people who contribute, really, frankly, let's not kid ourselves, very little, making very much, and people who I think contribute quite a lot, making not quite so much, uh, and I'm thinking firefighters, policemen, teachers, nurses, who do not get paid very well. And then you look at, say, entertainers who get paid millions and tens of millions. And, you know, I, I... I, I like television and movies and sports also. But, I mean, if you just look at the pay scales, our incentives seem so out of – jobs that are very, very valuable do not get paid very much. And jobs that really are not necessary at all get paid millions and millions. 
what's the economic incentive structure there? How, is, how are these things ending up like this? Well, in a sense, I mean, it's supply and demand, as usual. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, the superstar economy that you find not only in entertainment, but in many other professions, actually. Um, so those superstars, and that's a big challenge, um, you know, you have two ways. They can contribute to society by giving, and some of them do that in the U.S., of mm-hmm. course. The other way is, of course, to have some kind of you know, income taxation, which is progressive enough without destroying incentive to work, of course, but which is progressive enough. And uh, that, that's important. It's hard to do, actually, because, you know, you want to reward merit, of course, and people who have, for example, created a job and lots of you know, a firm and lots of jobs for others. You right. want to reward them, but at the same time, those people now they get rewarded. They get <laughs> rewarded. I think they get rewarded. They get rewarded yeah. very heavily, and, right. and 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 they deserve it. They earn it. I'm not they earn it. They yeah, no, that's yeah. right. The, the issue is really now international because if you think about people who create uh, Google or a new biotech company and so on, there are few people, highly talented and hardworking people, to be sure, but mm-hmm. they are completely mobile, so they can actually play one country against another, and you know people are going to move where. Of course, where the best universities will be and so on, and that's actually right. where America is very strong. But at the same time, also the ones which have the lowest taxes. And to some extent, you know, this fiscal competition, you know, we know, don't know how to solve it. And, and it's very hard because different countries want to have different tax rates. It's a choice of, uh, of society. And mm-hmm. economists don't have much to say about that. They can say tax structure is inefficient, but, you know, decided how redistributive a society should be is something that is a choice of society, not the choice of, of the economist. And um, so the question is, how do you make sure that there is limited, uh, reasonable tax competition among countries? But as long as there is that kind of competition, it's very hard actually to to redistribute because my view is that you know, you don't. We don't have to decide whether a banker is less deserving that of, than a football player or whatever. You know, it's yeah. this is re- this will be ridiculous. I mean, the question is, there could be some income redistribution through through income tax, and that's what we have got to do. You know, destroy all the loopholes and just make sure that people pay their fair fair taxes. Mm. All right. That's a strong statement. I like it. We are speaking with economic economic prize winner, Nobel Prize winner, Jean Tirol. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. For a new podcast experience, subscribe to the Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. Now on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beat. Paul Vigna here in the studio. Stephen Grosser is off today. We are speaking with Nobel Prize winning economist Jean Tirole. Jean, welcome back. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. All right. So this is good. I, I enjoyed our first segment. I think we cleared our throats a little bit there. <laughs> now we can kind of dig in, get a little deeper. Uh, so my, my job here now these days is covering Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, that, that whole kind of world. That's my beat now. And I think it's interesting, not just in what it says about Bitcoin and the idea of a rebel money and all that, but, but I mean, beyond that, I think there's a big, large question about economics, not economics, but about technology and even in market structures utilizing technology. 
uh, racing ahead of where we are in terms of economic theory. And it seems like to me that a lot of what is going on in the real world is is far ahead of where we are in terms of understanding how to manage it. And how do you where do you stand on that? What do you think is going on in the world right now? Is, is economics keeping up with what's happening in the real world? I think you are right, Paul. Um, economics is, we try to keep up with what's happening uh, to anticipate uh, the new challenges. So we have been working in particular in Toulouse, but all over the world on um, platform economics, so two-sided markets where you try to attract the two-sided markets, the buyer and sellers. And the top uh, five market caps in the world actually are two-sided markets. Uh, you know, Alphabet and Microsoft, Apple, mm-hmm. Amazon, and so on. Um, so it's a new economy, and we try to both work on the business model and how do you structure. So you mentioned Bitcoin. If you if Bitcoin wants to enter the market for you know to to compete with credit card, for example, debit cards, mm-hmm. it has to use a different structure of payments between buyers and sellers than it does now. That's one thing. But we also think about regulation. So, for example, nowadays um, antitrust authorities quote. Um, two-sided markets when in their arguments and they cite that heavily but uh, they don't always uh, you know apply the recommendation that you should take the two sides into account at the same time when you analyze market power and not one side in isolation because you know often the pricing structure are very unbalanced they are skewed you you know if you use google for example uh, you get all those great free services so it's it's like a negative price in a sense and but of course there is no no, no miracle, and the advertisers are going to pay a lot, right. and that's true for most two-sided markets. But we ha- we have to anticipate much more. You know the implication of AI, the the implication of of cryptocurrencies, and all those things. You know, and how how we are going to deal with those uh, markets, which are more and more concentrated. You see more and more of you know that. Uh, the markups have gone, gone up. You know the, the investment costs are very big, but then also the, the markups are, are, have been increasing in most industries, and, and not only in, in biotechnologies yeah. and, and IT. But you know, it seems like it's, it's funny because you talked about companies going where the tax structure is the best, and you talk about um, you know markets sort of getting ahead of, of regulations. It seems like we're at a point where if you understand what is going on in this world, that you you do have a, a maybe a larger advantage than, than in the past. I mean, regulators in different countries are trying to come to grips with what's going on, and they're not very well coordinated. Uh, but, you know, companies, you look at companies just, just in terms of, of tax, taxes, you know, they have been arbitraging tax structures for years, They've gotten this. They've gotten the global supply chain. They've gotten how they can kind of take the biggest advantage of of the marketplace. How do regulators get a grip on all this? On taxes, and uh, I'm not an expert on taxes, but it's no, pretty, pretty nobody clear. really is these <laughs> days. Actually, when you think about it, it's it's pretty clear that with transfer pricing, it has been going on for for centuries. But yeah. now, uh, of course, with intellectual property, it's very easy to locate. Uh, you know the money making uh, division in in some tax haven of right. course and then it gets all the revenues and and of course you know it's parked in in bermudas for example so it's not even clear that uh, the us benefits from that mm-hmm. um so um th- there it's just like with climate change you know with fiscal competition the only way is re- international coordination so i'm very concerned we we have to keep uh, talking internationally so as to find 
uh, agreements and, and, and under the previous administration, some were found, for example, with some tax havens. Uh, we need to to cooperate. I mean, the issue is not to say, you know, here's the right tax rate or something, but there is some minimum cooperation which has to, to be in place. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because on the one hand, I think it's very self-evident that that is the case, that we live in a global economy. We have a global marketplace. But as soon as you start talking about that, you will hear it from the skeptics who will start talking about the black helicopters and the global world order and, and some dystopian, horrible world government. Where where does that kind of coordination happen? Is it within, say, an institution like the UN? Is it outside of it? I mean, where do you see it happening? And, and where are you trying to encourage it to happen? Well, it's it's a geopolitical uh, issue and your mouth you know, I'm, I'm an economist, but uh, I try to think about those things. So, for example, I have a chapter on climate change. And one of the things that uh, strikes me is, you know, that with the COP21 in Paris, which was the agreement uh, two years ago about climate change, you look at the agreement. There was very little in the agreement, you know, in a sense, nothing binding, uh, no binding pledges, mm -hmm. some collective pledge to give to, to poor countries, but it was a collective pledge. I mean, there was nothing rebinding. But if you look at it, um, you know, the negotiator's intent was to get the 196 countries on board. So if you, if you have Venezuela or Saudi Arabia on board, you are already sure that there won't be anything in the agreement because, of course, they don't want any carbon price. Right. And that's a difficulty. In, in the end, what, you know, and I may be wrong, I think you, you also know that you need the biggest countries, in the case of climate change, that will be the biggest emitters, to get together and say, eh, we cannot go on like this. We need to do something, and let's at least agree among ourselves, which is not easy. I mean, it's, it's difficult. But let's agree among ourselves to actually do something, and let's put pressure, you know, maybe through the WTO, maybe through other things. Nothing easy in that matter, but, you know, trying to uh, agree to a new world order in some sense, because if everybody has a veto, nothing is going to happen. Yeah. All right. I don't know how much time you have, but I, I want to keep going for a few more minutes at least. I'm going to ask three more questions at least. Uh, I, I want you to, to give me, if you would, and I'll ask them all three questions in one because it's basically the same question from three different angles. Uh, if you could tell me one thing that economists could do to help the economy work better for the common good, one thing, say, regulators and politicians could do to help the economy work more for the common good. And one thing people, like those people out on 6th Avenue that we were talking about, one thing they should do for themselves to help both themselves and maybe for the work for the common good. Well, many questions here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, about politicians, I would like to say something. I talk a lot about um, politicians in the book because, of course, as an economist over the years, I got frustrated by seeing what kind of economic policy uh, are implemented. And even so, I was giving a lot of advice, and all, lots of my fellow economists were giving advice. But blaming economists, is, uh, blaming politicians, I'm sorry, is not going to lead anywhere. Mm -hmm. Because we have to realize politicians are like you and me and everybody else. We react to our own incentives. So if you are a politician, of course, you think about re-election, re re mm -hmm. which means that you are going to have short-term policy, short-term-oriented policies, uh, we economists have to think about the long term more. Um, but this short-term orientation is very damaging. So are the cognitive biases, of course. You know, I was mentioning earlier that 
we, for good reasons, actually, we believe what we want to believe. We want to think that the future will be bright and we don't have to put any effort to reduce the debt or fund the pensions or fight climate change or whatever. And, you know, this, by the way, this is pro- promoted by both uh, climate skeptics and by green growth, you know, people because they think that it's not going to cost anything to, to fight climate mm-hmm. change. It's the same idea in a, in a sense, even so they come from very opposite board, uh, side of, of, of the political spectrum. Um, so the politicians are always, you know, they are good politicians and bad politicians. They are courageous people and not courageous people. But by and large, they will tend to be short-termist mm-hmm. because they need to be reelected, And that's that the issue. And, you know, just blaming them is no good for, for democracy. At some point, we have to realize that they are incentives. So one of the things is that uh, we have to resist the siren calls of uh, the primacy of politics. Um, so, you know, there are many attacks, for example, on independent central banks, and people don't realize that actually independent central banks is the way, w- you know, we fought, we succeeded in getting rid of inflation, you mm-hmm. know, 30 years ago or 35 years ago. Same thing, you know, with powerful uh, prudential supervision, of course, we may reduce the risk of uh, financial crisis. And, and I would say it's the same thing with competition policy and the like. And they are not perfect. Uh, they don't have always uh, the perfect experts and so on. But they do a better job on average because they are independent, so they can more easily apply economic reasoning as opposed to being pressured by the lobbies. Um, so we have to restructure. We have to uh, you know, restructure government and keep you know keep it well organized. Provide incentives. You know, I, I say the market often fails, but the government fails as often as well. And you know, the market, the market uh, needs regulation, but the, the government needs incentives, and we don't have them. How, how do we? How do we do that? It seems like there is. It seems like there's kind of a not monopoly hold on power in in government. I mean, how do you restructure the incentives to get those better outcomes? Well, here is an. I issue. know that's a huge question. It's a too. huge question, and one what I'm what I'm worrying. Um, is basically is experts are more and more dismissed. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes for good reasons. But, you know, by and large, an economy without, you know, society without experts is extremely dangerous because anything goes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in most fields, there is a consensus at any point of time. And, you know, this consensus can change over time because we learn. But, you know, there, there is that data, there is a consensus that we should do this, this and that. And it's true in medicine, in climate science, in economics, and many other fields that are close to the public. And if we don't have this respect for experts, then it makes it into a very difficult uh, situation. And, you know, we see that more and more. I see in England, for example, with Brexit, some of the Brexit advocates actually say, you know, I I don't want to talk to experts. I want to talk to people. Mm -hmm. And same thing with Marine Le Pen with the National Front in France. She's always said, you know, I don't talk to the expert. I talk to the people. And, you know, this is very symptomatic of what's going on. And and if we don't have any respect for the experts, then, you know, the democracy is in big danger. Now, um, it's a long-term thing, but I think we should teach in high school the uh, so scientific method, for example, so that any pupil in high school, it's not that hard, actually, to teach it at the low level. You know, just small experiments to, to know how you do a control group and a treatment mm-hmm. group when you do an experiment you do it in medicine you do it in economics in other things 
you know, just to understand how you can test something, just just yeah. that, how do you build a theory, whatever. Well, you, and, and just basic logic. Basic logic, yeah. yeah. So, so right. for, for, for democracy, we need to actually have at least some respect for the experts. Mm-hmm. And that you have to teach in school. So you're getting back to education. Yes. So education is a huge part of this. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So much to talk about. All right. We could probably talk for another hour, but I'm sure you have a lot more to do. Jean Tirol is author of Economics for the Common Good, 2014 Nobel Prize winner in economics. We're so lucky to have you in today. I really appreciate this. Thank you for coming in. Thanks a lot, Paul. I really appreciate it as well. And everyone, I hope you got a lot out of it. I'm sure you got a lot out of it. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon.